And so the first thing when we started approaching this problem is like, hey, let's, if we could just deliver it purely as software, we can avoid all of those massive headaches that we saw and all of these things that prevent technology diffusion at scale. If we can come up with an approach that provides the optimization, the error corrections to improve GPS purely as software, then you know that gets rid of a lot of these obstacles and, and opens up some immediate markets for us. Welcome to the Space Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Anderson, founder and managing partner at Space Capital, a seed stage venture capital firm investing in the space economy. We're actively investing out of our third fund with 100 million under management. You can find us on social media at Space Capital. In this podcast, we explore what's happening at the cutting edge of the entrepreneurial space age and speak to the founders and innovators at the forefront. This is the Space Capital Podcast, and today we're speaking with Sean Gorman. He's co-founder and CEO of Zephyr. It's a company that's developing a novel network-based approach to augmenting GPS through the use of AI-based computational methods. Or to put it simply, they're focused on improving the accuracy and the resiliency of GPS for mobile phones and, and wearables. So we led uh, Zephyr Seed Round a couple of months ago, and we were joined by a great syndicate of investors like First Spark and Stanford Stanford Research Institute. So, Sean, it's really great to have you on. Thanks for taking some time to join us today. Oh, uh, thanks for having me, and thanks for investing as well. <laughs> Our pleasure. So, to start things off, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background. I mean, the founding team at Zephyr brings a lot of experience in uh, data and mapping. You've got a, a long track record spanning. A number of years have had multiple successful exits. So you yourself have a PhD in mapping. You have a lot of relevant experience in computer vision, mapping, AR, digital twins, and satellite imagery. So would love to just you know take a couple of minutes and, and explain your background, what has led you to where you are today. Also, I see that you describe yourself as a paleo map nerd trying to create an alternate reality. So would also love to hear you know, what that means. Cool. I, actually, we can kind of start there because it's somewhat relevant to the backstory as well. The first startup we did, actually, our, our CTO had written a book called Neo Geography for O'Reilly with this concept that, you know, that we're back in, you know, the 2007 timeframe with Google Maps coming out that there was going to be this new frame of geography that was delivered over the web and, and eventually later to mobile devices. And I had come from a background of traditional geography where I, you know, that was my academic background and, and more from like a computational statistical side of things. And so when we were working in the space and neo-geography came out, we started joking that we were paleo-geographers because we were the, you know, the kind of the, the folks that had come out of more traditional geography, but were very interested in and in how these new computational frameworks would uh, would change geography is as we had known it from an academic background and it's probably you know a good place where you know the story really starts that uh my intentions when this kind of all got going was being an academic i was at george mason university and and working on a phd and ironically it was actually in a school of public policy um, that was founded by two geographers from johns hopkins and basically found that they could get more grant money as public policy folks than they could as geographers and they had started a center for doing transportation simulation analysis. And George Mason is right outside Washington, D.C., along the Beltway. If you've ever been to D.C. and driven in D.C. traffic, uh, transportation policy is, is a big deal around there. And so they got a ton of funding for doing these really kind of high-end simulation and modeling things and then applying the outcomes to policy. 
and that was fascinating to me. I had done my my master's work in economic geography, looking at the uh, structure of the internet, which you know the late '90s was still kind of a nascent, upcoming thing, and mapping out that geography of fiber optic lines and seeing if it made a difference in economic growth and development and what kind of policy implications that could have. So you know, them being a big infrastructure place and my background being in doing that for statistical analysis of of information networks seemed like a really cool place to go. And so I went over there working with a professor named Roger Stow, uh, who was amazing and great and he gave me a, a long leash to start working on things. But you know, the interesting part of this is I enrolled in 2001 in August and you know, we did like the kind of traditional offsite to kick off a university onboarding. And you know, two weeks later, 9-11 happened. And so that really shaped kind of my direction in a big way. And largely it was an outcome of on the on the heels of, of 9-11, there was a lot of interest in critical infrastructure and the vulnerability or resiliency of that critical infrastructure to both natural disasters and, and terrorist attacks. And George Mason got an earmark from Congress into the law school to study critical infrastructure. And so the professors I was working with, Lori Schentler and Raj Kalkarni, who are two you know, really great computational folks. We were talking about you know the, the work I had done for my master's thesis, and I had this this database I had built back then of, uh, of fiber optic lines and cables and where they ran and the right of ways. You know, getting down to a pretty high level of precision for that stuff. You know, relatively speaking, it was GIS data. And, uh, and they said, "Hey, we should put in a proposal with the data you have from your master's work and and see if we can get get some grant money." I said, "Oh, that'd be awesome." That's kind of the deal I had with my advisor, Dr. Stow, was that you know I had a year to come up with a research topic and see if I can find uh, some funding for it. And if I couldn't find something, then I would get attached to an existing project. And so this kind of this awesome opportunity is like, oh, I can, you know, Lori Raj and I can kind of drive our own destiny and and put something together. So we sent in a proposal and we heard nothing. We're like, oh, you know, it's probably too low level for a law school or too techie. Then a couple of months later, we we got a call. And I guess during that time, they were trying to find a, a director to run the the center. And they found somebody that had been in government and came out and was going through the proposals and came across ours and, and called us up and said, uh, said, hey, can you come in and talk about your proposal? Is this simulated data or is it real data? I'm like, oh, no, it's, it's real data. And like, can you come in tomorrow? I'm like, sure, yeah, that sounds, sounds great. Maybe <laughs> give us some funding. And to make a, you know, a long story short, I'm probably getting way too much preamble. You know, basically came back and said, you know, I've been in the government for multiple years and we've been trying to get this data aggregated and everybody says it doesn't exist and it's not possible, but you all look like you've done it. And I uh, said, you know, could you come give some briefings around town for it? And so it started this kind of dog and pony show where we went to all the three-letter agencies around DC and briefed them on this open data we had aggregated. And, and at the time, Raj and Lori come up with some really cool statistical techniques to analyze it. You know, I was trying to to learn to implement the code, to, to work on it. You know, we're kind of crashing <laughs> into it, trying to put some real, you know, academic and scientific rigor around it. But, it, you know, it kind of just took off on a life of its own and these government agencies got a, got a little worked up. And then a Washington Post reporter heard that these, you know, grad student professors were making waves with this open data they had within the Intel community. So she came and spent, they sent a reporter, uh, Laura Blumenfeld, to spend uh, like three days with us which was, you know, kind of shocking as a grad student, somebody was interested in, you know, our, what had just been, you know, kind of esoteric work before that. And then, you know, she spent the three days with us and we walked through everything we're doing. And then she disappeared and, you know, we're, we're saying, well, maybe there'll be a story like at the back of the paper and, and there was nothing for months. And so we kind of forgot about it and just kept on cranking away on our work. And, you know, we gotten some grants at this point 
from the emerging Department of Homeland Security, and they'd run contracts through Oak Ridge National Labs with these great folks at the labs we were working for that were wonderful. And actually, I had taken off to go to London. There's a, a place in London called the University or the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis at the University College at London that was doing a lot of the similar kind of mathematical and computational statistical models I was really interested in. And I had a good friend over there who ran the uh, ran the lab. And so we'd basically, you know, figure out funding to be able to go in and do work with each other. And so he had, you know, figured out some some funding and and with the stuff we got from George Mason went over there and we're doing work. And while I was over there, the slow news day finally hit and the article that Laura had written ended up on the front page of the post. Since it was a slow news day and there was nothing else really to talk about, all of the TV shows started picking up on it. And so uh, CNN sent like a limo over to pick up me and my buddy and take us to the studios in London and do an interview with, with Wolf Blitzer, which was totally bizarre and weird and surreal at the time. Especially for my lab buddy, you know, we're both, we're both grad students. You know, you always wonder, you hear, you hear all the time stories about how technology goes from academia and goes out and like permeates out into the real world. And now we know firsthand that it does it in a limo. <laughs> yeah, it was apparently, it was, you know, somebody had never ridden in a limo. <laughs> it was particularly wild. And, you know, it was like a grad student, you know, who was living on like, a, you know, a $14,000 a year stipend. It was extra cool or, you know, just fascinating. So, so you know, we do the interview and, um, and then I fly back fly back to the US and by happenstance, one of the professors at the university had been an anchor at CNN previously. And so, you know, they kind of do a tag team. They give us some quick media training. And there was also some weird like security concerns. So we actually had like one of the CNN like security people come in and brief us on on how to be aware of our surroundings and so forth, which is also super weird and surreal. But so we ended up doing this media tour of going to, you know, all the you know usual suspects. By this point, it's 2003 that you would expect around something like this. And so eventually, you know, after doing enough of these news shows and magazine articles and so forth, the university sent patent lawyers over to see if there was something they could patent because a lot of people were calling up to the university asking if they could buy the technology. You know, and we had some, you know, hacky MATLAB scripts and, you know, some really raw C code where you seen to run simulations and a lot of PowerPoint slides to present it all. But, you know, said, hey, there's, you know, this, you can't, license this off. It's so half-baked. And so basically, they gave us a decision of spin a company out or license the technology to a company. And there was a boat club that I rode at in, in DC, in Georgetown and Potomac. And one of the colleagues, one of the mentors there that I'd always really looked up to was a guy named Don Spiro, who like won the world championships in rowing back in the 60s while he was doing a PhD and then spun a company out from it. And so I was you know, talking to him in the locker room about what we were going through. And he's like, it's like, hey, I, I went through something really similar and I've been working at the University of Maryland had this place called the Dingman Center that was a center for entrepreneurship. And they'd actually set up a VC fund within the university. And he said, hey, I'm in the process of doing this. I've done lots of stuff with spinning technology out of the university. You know, I'd be happy to get breakfast and just talk through it. And so he helped us out more and more and, and you know, did a great job of just pro bono helping us out with the university and the IP along with my professors. And uh, so long story short, we ended up spinning a company out. Their venture fund invested along with some other venture funds. Eventually, Inkytel came in and, uh, and we spun a company up and, and started running with it. And you know, the first thing I said was, <laughs> I'm a grad student. I've done some tech jobs before I went back to grad school, but you know, I'm not a CEO. I don't, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. So I said, okay, we'll get a, you know, we'll a headhunter and go recruit somebody to be a CEO. So we recruited a CEO and 
and started the company and you know went to go go fundraise. And fast forward to today, and you're at the helm. You are founding your how many is this fourth uh, fourth fourth company, and you're at the helm of it. And you have um, now done this and repeated this several times. You've built and sold multiple businesses to large companies in in this space and worked at those companies for a couple of years afterwards before going on and doing it again. Yeah, it's, you know, like we say, we, we try to make new mistakes each time and, and not make the same mistakes we made the last time. And the first one, we made a lot of mistakes sure, and learned a lot along the way. You know, and I think one of the, the most beneficial parts of, of that experience was, was building a really good team around that. You know, I think we, we got up to a little over you know, 40, 45 people or so. A lot of the key people that came into that, you know, became, you know, not only lifelong friends, but also lifelong collaborators as well. And I think, you know, any, any story about these ventures in general is completely incomplete without uh, Pramukta, who was, who was actually our, our first intern at GOIQ, which was the startup that spun out of George Mason. And a lot of what I had used in my academic works was from statistical mechanics and physics, um, like within condensed matter kind of work. But, you know, I, I kind of half knew it, half taught myself. And Raj, the other professor, had a much better understanding of it and taught me what he knew. But neither of us were, were physicists. And then we, we came across Pramukta, who was, uh, who was getting his degree in physics, specifically in condensed matter, and StatMac was, was his, uh, his strongest and favorite part. And so brought him on as an intern. And he eventually became the CTO of the company. <laughs> and we've collaborated on every, uh, every startup since then. He's been the, the CTO technical founder for all of those things. And, and it was great because he actually knew, <laughs> he actually knew statistical mechanics, which, you know, I'd been trying to teach myself for multiple years. So it was awesome to have somebody that was actually super well versed in it. And, and just that physics background in general has been a really brilliant theoretical and practical framework for, for tackling a lot of fun problems across all the startups that we've done. And that's a really interesting and unique thing about your team also is that you have been together, you have founded companies and exited those companies multiple together as the same founding team, which has got to be to go through and be in the trenches and to do that multiple times and to still be good friends and be working together is really, really, I think, a testament to, to the bond that you guys have. Your most recent company prior to Zephyr that you sold was bought by Snap. I'm curious, in particular, how geospatial and GPS are being used at Snap? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really fascinating kind of how that unfolded and, and also in general how geospatial is used at Snap because uh, when we went and joined Snap, the, the team was actually broken into two. And I went over to the, the maps team and Pramukta went over to the augmented reality team. And both ended up being you know, very heavy users of, of geospatial, but functionally in, in two opposite parts of the, of the company. Both aspects are, are really illuminating for how you know, big tech and social media in general uses geospatial. Going over to the Maps team, you know, I think about three or four years before I had joined, uh, maybe even a little bit more than that, Snap had put a hidden feature into the Snapchat app with a map. And they'd used map boxes, uh, map tiles, and they had you know, taken the location that folks were could share, and then they could see where they and their friends are. So it was a live friend map. And that was a pretty unique thing within the social media space um, at the time, at least at the scale that Snap was doing. And it ended up being massively popular. And so they ended up building a whole team around that Maps product. And when, when I came on board, they were in the, uh, the process of wanting to move off the third-party mapping provider because basically it had gotten big enough with like 350 million 
you know, users of, of just the maps that, you know, they wanted to have control of the mapping platform themselves. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, in general, across the industry, AR and maps were kind of fusing together. And so I think, you know, there was, you know, general winds blowing in that direction. But specifically what I ended up doing was was helping the folks there build the team out to replace that third-party mapping provider. So, you know, you need your your whole mapping stack within that. You, know, you need roads and street, which OpenStreetMap does a fabulous job of providing. But you also need a satellite layer. And that was actually the first thing that I ended up working on satellite and aerial imagery and building out a our own bespoke version of that. But you also need, you know, land cover, because that's if you're like me, I never I didn't have a Snapchat account when we when we started working with them. So I was late to the game and understanding all things Snap. But the Snap map is a really has a really vivid, bright cartography and they use uh, land cover data to make that happen. So we needed to build our own land cover data set and build that out from satellite imagery. So we use some some cool uh, sentinel imagery products to build out that land cover data. And they also had like a, you know, terrain with hill shading. So there's a variety of, of things, both cartographically and pragmatically that needed to go into place to uh, to do that replacement. So it was a fascinating, really fascinating project. I'd never worked in the consumer space with that many users before or through mobile in that way. What was it that during your time at Snap that made you think that there was a gap in the market, that there was something, you know, like, what did you see there that led you and Pramukta to say, you know, there is a company here, like, let's found mm-hmm. Zephyr? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the mapping side I just described was context of, of understanding that market and its mechanics from a production perspective better. But the actual driver for the idea uh, came from Pramukta on the AR side. Whereas, you know, Pixelate, the company we had built, you know, didn't really have a whole lot to do with most of the work that I was doing on the map side. It was really built around this concept of crowdsourcing a 3D map of uh, at city scale for powering a visual positioning system and making augmented reality and autonomy viable at an economic trade-off from a unit cost perspective. Because, you know, basically, you know, Apple and Google had both, you know, Google first with Street View and their own airplanes, you know, has a wonderful 3D map of the world. And they were able to turn that into a, a feature database to power things like live view. So you could do live AR walking directions. And Apple also having big AR goals went and made a similar investment. They, they bought a company from Saab to power their look-around cars, um, which is you know, even a fancier version of, of Street View than what Google had. And so they've been trying to enable, using that same data to enable you know, city-scale AR interactions. But you know, these are in billions of dollars in, in assets and data collection and compute to make that all happen. So you know, a lot of the other players that don't have those kind of budgets were looking for more economical ways to go about doing that. Meta, Facebook bought Mapillary, which is a crowdsourced Street View, to help power the the work that they want to do, which was a really awesome team, and they've been doing fascinating stuff. And we were looking at at how we could crowdsource using people's mobile devices to make this kind of happen. But you know, the, the issue we ran into, and I think the issue a lot of people ran into, is when you're doing crowdsourcing off people's mobile phones, was that the GPS just isn't accurate enough. You had too much drift, especially in urban areas, which are the places that you care about most for enabling AR experiences. You know, the multipath issues and other you know urban canyon challenges just made the GPS data attached to these these videos and photos too sketchy to be able to turn into viable models. You know, we found if we had a GoPro and we had a, some telemetry, even basic telemetry on there, we could make it all work. And you can do a bunch of computational tricks and kind of get that phone data to work, but it's it's janky and it's hard and it's expensive. And when we we're in the process of of working on this problem, 
Pramukta had kind of had the eureka moment of maybe seeing a path forward for it. We had we were doing some work for for one of the big tech companies, and and they wanted a ground truth data set to test against for the visual positioning system that we were we we're uh, testing out for them. And so we rented an RTK differential GPS, which is like a survey grade GPS that you see people on construction sites with, where usually there's like a a pole or a tripod with a big antenna. But what really makes that work well is that there is a base station nearby, usually within 10, 15 kilometers, that sends an error correction to that. And so basically you have a super precise fixed signal, and then you have this rover with a really nice antenna, and then you can cancel out the error between the measurements of those two uh, devices and come up with like a you know one or two centimeter accurate survey measurement with these techniques. And so we had rented one of these things and we're, you know, jumping through the hoops trying to make them to work and you know, you have to sign up ahead of time for a free base station if you don't want to pay, you know, somebody like Trimble thousands of dollars for network access. But there's all these great, you know, NOAA core stations that are for free, but you have to register ahead of time and it takes a week and then you have to set up in-trip messages. There's a whole bunch of like hoops to jump through to get these things to work. And we're, you know, fumbling around trying to get these things to go and getting a little frustrated with it. And we're on a corporate campus where before the pandemic, there's hundreds of people around looking at their phones and Pramita kind of looks around and says, why don't we just make everybody's phone a base station? And then we could get corrections, get all those measurements and feed them into, into a model that could converge on reality, which was very similar to some of the statistical techniques we were using for the AR computer vision work at the time. And he says, I think, you know, this similar kind of ensemble approach could work. You know, we're in the middle of a project and we, we talked about it over dinner, got more excited and they were like, hey, we got a, a project to deliver here. Let's put this on the shelf and we'll come back to it. And so after, you know, and at the time we're like, well, when we ended up getting acquired by Snap, we're like, oh, I bet we bet, you know, Snap has this amazing computer vision team. I bet you they've solved it. You know, it ends up that none of these big folks had really solved this particular problem. And so when we left Snap back in the fall of last year, we're kind of, you know, thinking about, well, what are we going to do? We're like, oh, the GPS idea. Let's pick it off up the shelf and, and see, if, see if we can do something with it. You know, this is an area that that at Space Capital we've been focused on for several years. I mean, there's clearly a need in the market to improve the accuracy and the resiliency of GPS, particularly for spatial computing, um, and particularly in the urban canyons that you, know, that you were mentioning. And we've looked at dozens of business plans, right? All of them ad- addressing this problem from different angles. You know, there's constellations of GNSS satellites, you know, the obvious challenge with that approach is that it's very capital intensive, right? You need half a billion dollars to sort of get to minimum viable product. And then, you know, there's the other piece that I don't think a lot of people, companies are thinking through that with GPS today, it is reliable because there is an entire team dedicated in Colorado that that is working the the post to keep it secure 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? Like, I don't know that a lot of startup companies understand what 99.999999% uptime really means in terms of just operations and logistics, but also cost, right? So that's a really, really challenging approach. We've looked at, at relays, kind of like the, the solution that, you know, on construction sites and things that you were mentioning. People were talking about putting relays on light posts and lamp posts and things within cities, and then they would help triangulate. But your approach has a number of compelling benefits that we didn't see in the others. And one is that it's software first, and therefore it's inherently scalable. So a very elegant software-only solution. You know, Can you walk us through your approach to this problem and how you see it going from here? Yeah, I mean, one of the 
issues that we ran into when we started thinking about this for the computer vision AR use case was, you know, how can we get better hardware to work with to crowdsource these things? And uh, and pretty quickly we realized that there's just this massive bottleneck with trying to leverage advanced hardware in a crowdsourcing scenario is that the device manufacturers need to adopt the new hardware or get new firmware deployed onto the devices. That process of, of how you roll out and how you deploy and how much time that takes to get out to the masses and actually be implemented. You know, the number of people who don't even upgrade their operating systems, right, and are still running on the operating system that their phone came with is a problem, right? And so if you think about trying to get not only people to adopt new technology or new firmware and update their devices with that new technology or you know the handset manufacturers putting new GPS chips on them or you know tethering these things to more advanced devices through the mobile phone, Basically, all of them are hard and all of them are difficult, both from a business and a technical and an operational standpoint. So when we started thinking about the problem, you know, the first thing that we wanted to avoid were all these headaches we saw when we were looking at tackling the problem at Snap and and when we had been been pixelate of, you know, we had eventually gone to sending people GoPros for free to be community ambassadors to collect data, right? We were so desperate to get people with with higher tech collection mechanisms for us. And so the first thing when we started you know, approaching this problem is like, hey, let's, if we could just deliver it purely as software, we can avoid all of those massive headaches that we saw and all of these things that prevent technology diffusion at scale. If we can come up with an ap- approach that provides the optimization, the error corrections to improve GPS purely as software, then you know, that gets rid of a lot of these obstacles and, and opens up some immediate markets for us. And then the other side of it that was really compelling for us selfishly was that since it's a, a network-based approach to GNSS, is that you know the more devices that we can get on, the more data we have to work with, and the better we can improve our ensembles and do our optimizations and do our robust estimations and so forth. And so being able to deploy over software to mobile devices was kind of a natural hand-in-hand fit. That more data made us more better, to use bad English, and... Uh, and if we could do that over software, we avoided a bunch of these, you know, hardware headaches that we had run into previously. How significant is this improvement? I mean, how much more accurate can you get from using this networked approach? And, you know, what does this mean for people in their everyday lives? Like what benefits, what use cases uh, mm-hmm. do you see for ultra precise positioning? Yeah, I mean, we've we've had a great benefit in the in the process of developing this technology. That you know, early on, you know, January of of this year, we teamed up with SRI, uh, Stanford Research Group, and and they have this amazing PNT group, which is positioning, uh, navigation, and timing, which covers GPS and and other kind of location based methods. And they have uh, a really well regarded simulation and benchmarking tool set that they, they use and that work across a whole bunch of other folks. You know, technology from them is spun out into companies, you know, like Zona and others. And so they're, you know, great reputation, well-regarded. So we went in early to them and SRI ended up investing. And as part of that, we were able to access one, all of their PhDs and, and two, all this great benchmarking and simulation capacity. And so to your accuracy question, that was the first thing we wanted to do was to go through and run through every possible scenario we could think of to understand how the model works, where it falls apart, and how we make it more robust. And so we've been doing that since January and and continue to iterate and improve and throw harder and harder tests at the technology. 
And within those tests, you know, our, our target was to be below 50 centimeters. And we found that with just three devices on the network, and those devices need to be roughly within 10 kilometers of each other, that we could be below 50 centimeters. You know, if we had 10, you know, 10, 11, 12 devices within that, you know, 10 kilometer radius, we could be, you know, below 30 centimeters within those benchmarks that we were running with SRI. This is really important for kind of our, our, our unit costs and economics, right? You know, how many devices did we need to be able to sample to get this error correction to broadcast out to everybody? If it required 100 devices or 1,000 devices, then that was going to be more computationally challenging because the ensemble will be a lot bigger to get to that solution. We need more compute infrastructure and it was going to need to be more sophisticated. But the great thing with, with SRI is we're able to get down to not only hit our do better than what our, our target was, but be able to do that with a minimal number of phones, which really made us feel a lot better about the scalability and also the amount of capital that we would need to be able to go to market with this. So that's going to be the first question. And we're in the process of doing that that field field testing with live devices now, and it's trending back towards those exact same targets being being sub-50 centimeters. But you know, when we when we launch this, we'll have great quantified metrics and results for those in the field with with live mobile devices, as well as all the simulation stuff that we did with SRI. That's great. And so is it true, because it's network-based, the more nodes you have online, the better and more accurate it can be? Yes, that's definitely the case. Although a certain point is diminishing returns mm-hmm. in that you know, you're not improving the accuracy that much, but you're increasing your compute overhead by the number of, uh, of signals you're, you're jamming into the ensemble. And we generally found you know, that trade-off kind of you know, after 15 devices, the additional accuracy you gain is not worth the, the extra compute um, against it. That's nice in that you know, we, can, we can keep the compute low and, and then still hit our, our accuracy and resiliency targets with the models. And then so where do you see this being used? Who do you think is going to be most excited about adopting this technology? Yeah, I mean, we've had some great conversations. You know, it was uh, it was funny when we were first discussing this, and we we had left Snap. We had done a lot of business planning around the AR use case that we that we knew really well. And I think, like most people, when you when you leave a startup, you always have ideas of how it could have gone better. And I think I personally was fixated on uh, how could we have nailed this better and really done it. And then Pramukta reminded me as we were going through that, you know, it's like, hey, you know, we, we sold early because we didn't know when the augmented reality market was going to become mainstream and really viable. And, you know, if anything, we know less now than we did when we sold the company. It ended up being a good bet, right? You know, we, we just didn't know when AR was going to be more than the Google, Apple, Facebook, Niantic snaps of the world. And so, you know, in, in hindsight, that ended up being a good decision because I think, you know, people are even less sure now of when that's going to happen. I think people are still confident that there's a big market there, but when we're going to overcome all of the technical problems with getting a, a viable headset is, you know, is, is really a big challenge, much like autonomous vehicles. But that being said, you know, we're just like, hey, you know, GPS just in and of itself has lots of users. We should explore that. And I was like, ah, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> and so I started calling up friends at, you know, at rideshare companies and other big tech and social data companies insurance, you know, folks in the automotive space that were looking at uh, collision avoidance and just started having as many conversations as I could with people that, you know, had businesses built around GPS, GNSS, and, you know, where did it cause problems? Where did they think there was opportunities to save money and improve it? And the cool thing, you know, from a business perspective was, you know, basically everybody came back and said, yeah, GPS is kind of awful, but we've learned to live with it. And <laughs> it's at the core of our business model. 
you know, some of the rideshare and food delivery folks shared anecdotes where, where they said, you know, they've done analysis where if they can save one second on average for the pickup of riders or the delivery of food, that they make another you know, $1.5 million a year. And it's just, you know, one second because there's so many drivers and so many rides and deliveries happening that even the smallest improvement logistically is a big difference from a revenue perspective. And so you know, really dug into that one on the insurance side, they were sharing, you know, because you can, you know, download one of these apps and it monitors your driving through your phone or sometimes with a device that's put onto the vehicle. A friend from insurance was sharing, you know, that they just get all this vitriol because when you drop lock on a GPS, it looks the exact same as somebody breaking hard on the road. And so people would be getting dinged for like, you know, driving down, hmm. you know, I-75 and they'd lose GPS. And then they'd, their insurance would get dinged <laughs> because it was recorded as a heartbreaking event. Oh, interesting. And, you know, other folks like, you know, SRI has done a lot of really groundbreaking work around collision avoidance. And a lot of folks have wanted to, you know, within vehicles for, for on the automotive space. And there's a lot of interest of like, could we also tie in collision avoidance to pedestrians and bicycles and things along those lines? But, you know, GPS just isn't accurate enough to do that. The other one that's really interesting is, is the gaming gaming use case that, you know, that there's amazing, you know, mobile-based games like Niantic's Pokemon Go that's generated billions of dollars. But there's also a challenge because, you know, all of these games are dependent on geofencing. And that is kind of the game mechanic, right? Is you you put a geofence around an area and when your GPS goes into that geofence, it triggers a game mechanic. You know, the Pokemon shows up, you do whatever you're going to do with the Pokemon, and then the interaction ends. But basically, there's always so many ways you can spin that game mechanic into with different IP and, and different experiences. So there's also you know a lot of hunger within the gaming industry for new mechanics. And one of the really cool things about this network-based approach with GPS is that the technique that Pramukta and the team, Kostas and Scotty, have, have put together, it does a relative distance metric between all the devices. And that relative distance metric helps improve the accuracy as it fixes it into real-world coordinates. But the other cool thing it does is, you know, within that SRI work, you know, we're below 20 centimeters, oftentimes 10 centimeter accuracy for relative position between the device. So when a device gets close to another device, we have really good metrics for doing that. And so collision avoidance, you know, is one of the cool, or not cool, but um, very socially useful aspects of that. But uh, another more fun one is doing like a game of tag. You have entirely new game mechanics you could do because with that very close relative distance, you know, as your phone gets close to my phone, when they intersect each other, you know, that becomes a pretty good metric for saying, hey, we've had a collision, right? We've tagged each other. And that opens up a huge new world of game mechanics. And, you know, I think just in general, having that level of precision, you know, especially start adding things like pose estimation to these and and tap into the IMU and sensor fusion we definitely see a world where where this could replace visual positioning systems, which are incredibly expensive and a huge impediment to AR, and become you know a new a new approach that could potentially open up that market that's been so challenging. Wow, and I mean, also really appreciate that you guys are very early in this journey, and these are the initial sort of just initial conversations that you're having and initial use cases that you're thinking up. I mean, the market here is is massive, and I want to I want to touch on that a little bit, but before we do that. Look, I mean, positioning is is undeniably valuable to all of us, as demonstrated by the fact that we carry it around and use it on a daily, like continuously throughout the day. Um, we are leveraging this technology. It makes our lives better. So I guess 
in exchange for this? Are people then they need to share their location data with Zephyr for these benefits or? Actually, no. So, you know, I think one of the things we thought about hardest as we got into this was privacy. But, you know, it's from multiple perspectives. I mean, one, we saw how important privacy was when we were at Snap and how conscientious they are with that and their user community and all the pains they went through with like live location, for instance, to protect privacy, both internally from the engineering perspective, but also from a, an external messaging perspective and helping the public understand what they're doing and how, how they're protecting privacy across that. And then just our own, you know, personal experience with being in the in the space, geospatial community for such a long time, and you know, and seeing stories where where privacy has been abused, and really thinking about how we could engineer the the product from the ground up to be privacy forward, and and really have that as you know one of the core values and technical differentiators in what we're doing. And so, you know, the, the easiest way to do this would be to send everybody's location up to a server with the measurements and and then calculate that improvement, store that improvement, broadcast their location out and just aggregate a massive database of, of everybody's location. I mean, there's there's a ton of, of value in that. But we also felt like that was the wrong thing to do from an ethical standpoint. That, you know, anytime you aggregate that much data, even if you try to put anonymity around it, there's just too many ways to unwind that anonymity, you know, like with the New York City's taxi cab database where that was all anonymous and pretty quickly people were unwinding all sorts of personal information within it. And so we ended up taking a, you know, a different approach in that really what we need for doing our error correction are the, the satellite measurements. You know, the, the personal information and personal location information about the users isn't relevant. And so, you know, we need things like the, the pseudo range, the ADR, the carrier phase data, these measurements, you know, off the satellites that feed into the location equation. And so the way we've set it up is, is having the, uh, Having those measurements pushed up to the server, those measurements associated with location are held in memory while that computation is done within the ensemble. And then instead of solving for the person's location, we actually solve for the error correction that needs to be made to that initial GPS data. And then we broadcast those error corrections down to the person's device. That error correction is used locally to determine their location. Any of that location metadata to create that ensemble you know, once that calculation is done, it's dumped from memory and the new data comes in. We never save it to disk, never store anybody's location. And that, you know, from our perspective, and I think generally from engineering practice keeps things very clean from the standpoint of, you know, we're just really in the business of improving the accuracy of the GPS data that that your phone is is generating. And then, you know, it's, it's up to the you know, the app developer and the user for their relationship on on how that data is shared. But you know, from from our standpoint, you know, we we very much don't want to be in the the business of of aggregating and and brokering brokering data and and having those those kind of privacy concerns. It's really just about new mechanics and and new ways to improve GPS so that people have better app experiences and and can solve you know new interesting problems through their mobile devices and wearables. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks. So I want to get back to the use cases and how that turns into um, actually a market for what you do. So last year, the Geospatial World Forum estimated the size of the global geospatial market to be $450 billion. And it's projected to grow at a CAGR of 15%. So by 2028, the market is expected to reach a trillion dollars. The geospatial economy is underpinned by high-precision data collection and GNSS and positioning remains the largest and fastest growing segment within that geospatial 
market makes up about 55% of the total market share. So this is massive. I mean, we know that the U.S. Commerce Department came out with a report um, a few years ago talking about how GPS has generated a trillion and a half dollars of economic value in the U.S. We've written the GPS playbook, which dives into that and the venture returns that are on the heels of this. So this is clearly a massive market, clearly, you know, from consumer, from enterprise, from government, everyone is using this and it is improving business and it's improving our lives. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, when you think about numbers that are sort of like that large, how do you think about the market for what you do? How much of that can you capture? How much, you know, like what segments are are within range or out of range? You know, just how are you thinking about the market overall? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question point. And, you know, the, the size of the market is very exciting. And, and I think one thing I love about this technology is that it it impacts the vast majority of people. I mean, you know, the number of mobile phones on this planet that are, that are GPS, GNSS enabled is is just humongous. And so the, you know, the ability to build something that has the potential at least to to touch a lot of folks and improve lives and and create new opportunities is is super exciting. But I think within that, you know, we really had to focus on what area we thought that we could be most successful in and what was most well suited to the technology that uh, Promoot and the team had built out. And I think you know across that location-based services within mobile devices was a really natural fit. You know, since we had this this network effect that you know the more people that are on the network the the better the the overall location and the better solutions that we could create and the more geography that we could cover. Um, you know, mobile phones fit that well. You know, there's billions of them across the planet. There's three billion Android devices alone, and this becomes a great substrate to to launch a product into. And also, it's also where we heard people having the most challenges. The classic, I think, everybody's had the problem where the Uber or Lyft driver shows up on the wrong side of the street or the wrong block, and then they call you, and you do this dance of trying to find each other in a setting, which sometimes can have safety concerns and and can just be annoying, right? And so it was, you know, one of these things where I think uh, there was a natural fit in in the economics of our approach and and the way the technology was built out based on the fact that it was networked. And so that's really become our our focus of of you know starting off with these location based services within mobile applications and specifically you know folks with a large number of users that will benefit from an improvement in accuracy. But and I think to your your point earlier of you know we we've gone to the obvious places, but I think much of what excites me is what will people do with this new capability that we've never thought of. You know, what are the concepts that when you have really accurate relative distance and you have really precise, absolute location and potentially, you know, pose prediction is, is a very tractable problem to add on top of that. You know, that there's just a whole lot of cool things that you can do at scale with a lot of users. That's very exciting. So that's, you know, that kind of B to B to C is where we've been very squarely focused on. But longer term, you know, I think there, there's nothing that makes this approach dependent on mobile devices, right? It'll work for any kind of GNSS receiver, the same kind of benefit of, of networking receivers together, which opens up, you know, other really interesting enterprise markets, you know, down the road. But I think, you know, with, with any good technology, you need to, to find your initial target and really focus in and execute on that well, and then look for growth opportunities. Sure. So for any of our listeners who uh, are interested in seeing how Zephyr can, can help or integrating your networked GPS solution into their apps, where can they go to learn more? 
Yeah, definitely check out our website, zephyr.xyz, Z-E-P-H-R. And there's a great facility there to get you know, in contact directly with us. And yeah, we'd love to have feedback, love to discuss use cases. You know, we've had a lot of really interesting ones recently where folks have you know, asked about applying this to aviation and drones. You know, just wonderful experiences to learn and, and understand those use cases and, and see how we might help. And, and then also how we can best direct the technology to fit the market. Certainly very exciting, massive market, really cool technology, and, and we're really happy to be involved. Sean, thanks for taking time out of your busy day to, to join us. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. And uh, thanks for the support of the company. It's been amazing. Thanks for tuning into the Space Capital Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you're interested in learning more about investing in the space economy, I invite you to visit our website, spacecapital.com, where you can get access to more industry-leading insights and learn how you can join the entrepreneurial space age.